Today we'll be discussing writing for TV and movies and the Hollywood writer's strike with screenwriter Ramona Barker. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja. This is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, what we normally do is I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. But today is a special episode. Today we'll be discussing writing for television and the movies with award-winning screenwriter Ramona Barker. And we'll also be discussing the Hollywood writer's strike. We're very pleased to have Ramona Barkert on the show today. Ramona is a screenwriter whose credits include the movies At Home by Myself with You and Ordinary Days and the sci-fi show Winona Earp. She was the creator of the Canadian television series Open Heart and was nominated for an Emmy Award when she wrote in Degrassi and recently won a Canadian Screen Award for her work on Hulu's The Hardy Boys. Ramona Barkert, welcome to Dr. vs. Comedian. Hi, thank you for having me. I mean, we didn't have a choice, okay, you know, well, your agent called and said, you do this or you guys are finished. Yeah, he was uh, extremely aggressive about it. This is why he gets the cut of my, you know, he's doing his job. Great. Yeah. Well, good. You you let him know to call his dogs off because we're doing this. <laughs> you know, also if I talk about entertainment a fair amount on the show, pretty much every episode will cover entertainment. Sometimes we forego the medical and that's what we're doing unless there's something you have going on medically that you'd like to ask Asif about, but otherwise we're happy to go no medical this week because, you know, we've talked about writing rooms a little bit as far as what I know about writing rooms, but there's definitely a, a curiosity that both Asif and I have, and I'm certain that our listeners do about how one becomes a screenwriter. And I'm sure no two screenwriters paths are identical but I did want to start by digging in on how you became a screenwriter. Yeah, I mean, I basically started writing when I was a kid. I was always writing short stories, plays, poetry, different things like that. And I think when I reached my teens, you know, actually the love of film and television came from my mom. She was a huge, you know, watcher of every show that ever existed. She was a huge soap opera fan. Like some of my early like watches were Young and the Restless after school with her. We loved the primetime soap, Dallas, Falcon Crest. Like we had a whole like schedule of TV watching that we did together. Mm. And I think, you know, when I was writing my little stories, it always came from that sort of, you know, character-based, action-y, plot-heavy kind of place. I didn't write literary, you know, missives about anything. It was always coming from a very, you know, TV, film kind of focus. So I think when I got into my teen years, you just kind of get that awareness of like, oh, somebody's writing these things. Like there's actually people doing this and coming up with these stories and episodes of TV. And I just kind of grew an awareness of that and was like, I don't know, maybe 15. I was like, I'm just going to write a movie like just for myself. I'm just going to try it out and see what happens. And you kind of gather all your resources and your Sid Field books and try to figure out how to plot things the way the pros are doing it. And, you know, I just, I kind of was just kept doing that. And I got into university. I went to York University and I did an English degree, which meant a lot of, you know, reading 
you know, multiple novels over semesters. And I did kind of like, I need a break from like reading. I'm going to go do a little bit of film. And so I think it was just sort of an amalgamation of all those sort of forces in my life that kind of brought me to screenwriting as a potential career. And when you were doing your English degree, you were doing that because you still wanted to get in screenwriting, into screenwriting? I think I was doing it because I had a love of story. I wanted to read as much as possible and as widely as possible. And that seemed like a good way of going about it. I mean, you're kind of forced into the situation of reading, you know, 10 to 12 novels at a time and assessing and processing how the stories are told. I always felt like I was a writer. I didn't maybe know exactly specifically how that was all going to end up. Was I going to be a fiction writer? Was I going to write plays? Was I going to be a screenwriter? So I think when I picked English degree, I was like, this, you know, at least this gives you such a breadth of education in storytelling, no matter the format, you're going to get it doing a degree like that. So it kind of came from there. And what ended up happening in my actual first foyer into screenwriting was I had a mutual friend who was in at Ryerson formerly known as Ryerson University. He was in the film and television program and he was doing a fourth year short film project. Like every sort of graduate has to do this sort of fourth year project. And we knew each other and we kind of knew we both had a love for kind of a certain type of storytelling and an approach to filmmaking. And he asked me to write that short film for him. He wanted someone that was kind of outside of sort of the group of grads that were coming out of Ryerson. And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? Let's try it. I'm up for anything. So I wrote that for him. They went and shot it, it did really well. It was very highly lauded. And, and they do all these screenings for the grads. They kind of do these sort of film festival-y kind of nights. And one of the screenings actually attracted sort of the interest of an agent, Glenn Coburn, who at the time was at the characters. He saw the, the film and kind of approached, Chris Booth was my friend's name, and asked him, you know, He's always kind of curating young filmmakers and young talent in Toronto. And he asked to speak to me because he really, you know, liked the writing, liked the film, liked the way it all turned out, thought it was pretty inventive and interesting. And so my initial conversation was with him. And he said, look, like, if you want to be a screenwriter, if you want to do this as a career, I think you have the talent. And now we just have to build towards actually getting into the industry. And I was like, again, great. Like... <laughs> Let's see what happens. Let's do it up. And so it was kind of like, you know, me always practicing it on my own, figuring it out and a couple of, you know, serendipitous moments and lucky breaks. And then I was kind of off and running from there. And that just to add some trivia into this, that short film you're talking about, was that the beginning of At Home By Myself With You? No, that was a subsequent project that the short film that we did was called No Man's Land, which was a World War One drama in a trench. The whole film took place in a trench and it was sort of about oh, the soldiers man. in a trench. I had no, there was no reason for Chris to come to me and say, hey, <laughs> can you write this? Given your experience <laughs> with trenches. Yeah, I was like, you know what? I can do this. Yeah. So it was, it was, you know, let's try. It was, let's try something a big and epic and crazy. and see what we can make happen. But that was the start of Chris and I's partnership, which eventually led to us writing at home by myself with you together. Right. Which was where my trivia was going to yeah. be. I derailed my own trivia by, by okay. asking you the wrong thing or assuming the wrong thing. But my agency is the characters. Mm. They recently changed the location of their offices. Okay. And so I went to my agent's new office and right there, the only poster he had on his wall at this point 
was a poster of At Home By Myself With You. That's amazing. And I saw your name. And I was like, this is my friend. Like, we know this woman. I, this is, Asif has mentioned her so many times. And there she is on my agent's poster. wall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he said that he had something to do with that as well. I think you guys were, I don't know if you were sent on, a, you know, this mission or you took it upon yourself to go disappear. Yeah. we Hotel, yeah. the woods. I don't remember. Some place. We, we huddled into my parents' basement for three days and cranked out a first draft. Yeah. And that was, you know, back in the early 2000s, like we raised the funding to make that movie through a pocket change initiative where Chris was literally, he worked at Casting Link at the time and had a jar and people would throw their spare change and we would roll it up and we built our budget that way. We had funders come in. This was like before Kickstarter, before Mm -hmm. GoFundMe, like it was just like this random thing that we kind of pulled together. And then there was a lot of goodwill towards Chris and myself and the project. And, you know, we were able to get a great cast and... Yeah, the cast, by the way, especially for a Canadian listener, is quite a who's who here. Recently departed, Gordon Pinsent narrated it. Shauna McDonald is a name that people in the theater world yeah. really, really, I mean, they revere her. I don't know, if, is Kristen Booth Chris's sister? No. <laughs> no, okay. No. The two, two booths, the, they, double booths, double yeah, your booth. They have yeah. the same name. It's spelled the same way. It's very weird. It was very yeah. odd, but we kind of just like, fine. Yeah. Aaron Abrams yeah. is in it. Aaron Abrams, also somebody who's, you know, been working for a long time, but especially lately with Canadian viewers because of his co-starring role on Children Ruin Everything. He's well known. Raul Beneja is yep. a oh, yeah. he's, huge he's on the figure. All of them. Yeah. Brandon Furla. <laughs> great. You really. had everybody there. We had, had everybody. everybody. It was a great time. <laughs> so then Ramona, how does that work then? So then you're this agent, they took you on right after that the initial film. And then yeah, they kind of it was kind of a casual let's you know work together see where we can get your writing kind of thing i was non-union at the time no credits you know i non-union Ugh. it was like for a minute yeah <laughs> we're gonna talk about unions i guess we've soon, all been there yes, we've all been there yeah. i know yeah so but i didn't even have a, a specs like i didn't have a sample at all i had this short film that i had written and a bunch of garbage that i would never show anyone ever in my drawer and you know, my agent, Glenn Colburn, who is still my agent today and started Meridian Artists after he moved on from characters. But at the time was like, hey, let's just like, just write something, write something and I'll work on it with you. And we'll just go through the process of getting a really good sample script. So your, your agent worked with you. Absolutely. It was, I know that's not a a normal experience, especially now getting into the industry. But at the time, like, you know, Glenn is a very hands-on agent. He loves storytelling. He loves working with writers. I was lucky because I was kind of in those earlier days where I was kind of one of those like original 20 that he kind of took under his wing and worked with them. But it was just kind of, again, another serendipitous thing where I had someone who believed in my talent and skill and wanted to help me build a career and was willing to put in extra effort to help me get my skills in a place. And my actual first job was a non-union job. So sorry. But, you know, it was a half-hour comedy slash hybrid lifestyle show called The Smart Woman Survival Guide, which was an idea that producer Al McGee had, but didn't have a writer to kind of make it a real show. And was like, my agent was like, hey, check out Ramona. She's kind of, you know, something and might be a good fit for you. And 
we worked together to create that show and, and it ended up getting ordered and, you know, we did three seasons of it. And that was my first gig in the industry. And that all came from just, you know, support and encouragement and, you know, belief and me just going for it, I think was kind of how I got into it. I was just like, I don't know, let's try and ended up working out. So then Ramona, when it comes down to that show, for example, did you have like a spec script of something else that you showed them? Or was it like, oh, here's the plot of the show. Can you write a sample episode? I think at that time, it was a meeting where we talked about the show, the genesis of the show and what it could be and how it could work. And then I think I went away and kind of put a pitch together, put some ideas down and then went back and kind of pitched them on what I thought it would be and who the characters would be and how you could do a, a half hour comedy slash lifestyle hybrid show where you would stop to kind of give lifestyle tips in the middle of a sequence. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. it was all just like how it could actually function. And they were like, yeah, sounds cool. Let's go for it. So I think at that point, I think I was hired to write the pilot script. This was so long ago, but I feel like there was at least one script that I wrote, but it wasn't... Mm -hmm. It was a collaborative process. It wasn't kind of me just going and writing a script. I think I had to kind of, you know, give them the gist of what I would want to do or how it could work originally. As you talk about this sort of this, this idea of collaboration, it's interesting to me, you know, the short film, it was just you going away, seeing what you could do. Then you're working with Chris Booth. Then you're working with Glenn, yep. you and Al McGee. Al, I happen to know I... He met me when I was looking to create a cooking show mm. and a lovely, lovely man. Yep. One of the nicest people that I met in Toronto, but you can't talk about writing or being a screenwriter without talking about a writing room. How do you graduate from these solo and duo projects into being part of a room? Is it again, somebody just sort of taking a chance on you in a limited role and that grows? Yeah. Once Smart Women, Women Survive the Guide got ordered and we were, I think, had 13 episodes for a season, they built out a room. I was too junior at that time to run the room. So they brought in Claire Ross Dunn, who was a bit more senior at the time. She filled out the room with sort of a myriad of other writers and we worked on breaking the story and like you know that is an ideal like I realize that is not a normal situation to be brought on to create something and then be able to stick in the stay in the room but also learn and sort of kind of in a it's a training module you know and I think Al and a few other sort of legendary institutions that I've been lucky enough to work in have really been important in me learning how to be in a writer's room and I've been in a lot of different ones I've learned a lot from people doing things that I love and people doing things that I don't like so much. You kind of take away from every experience, you know, something. But I think the transition to doing it on your own and, you know, it's jarring. You think you know everything and how the show should be. And having come from the position of creating the show to kind of now taking a not secondary role, but like now I have to work mm -hmm. with other people. Yeah. It's, you know... You have to be confident in yourself and your ideas, and you also have to believe other people can bring something mm -hmm. to it as well. You can't, you know, you don't have all the answers. We have all the answers. That's kind of yeah. the, the best way to go through that. So maybe you could tell us, how does it usually work in terms of how you get into that? And then what the process would be, you said, breaking the story. Like, how does that yeah. usually work? Getting into a writer's room, like just yeah, getting the gig. Yeah, I think the general way that it kind of works nowadays is you, as a writer, you write samples. You really have to have 
written a bunch of them because your first three are going to suck and you need to keep trying and not be discouraged. I would say those like, are the ones in your drawer. Yeah, those are the ones in your drawer. <laughs> but honestly, like to me, I'm like, if you get to five scripts and you're still doing it and you're still, you know, like you have, you're like, I can do this. I'm getting better. I think you're in a good spot. If you're only one or two, forget it. Like you need five, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. then come talk to me. But I, it really is about getting a great sample or two or three that you can show to people and people being other writers, showrunners, agents, you know, it's really about kind of building that network of people so that when a writer's room is looking for junior story editors or they have positions that opened up your top of mind or you come, you know, and it, again, it's kind of luck. Like if you write a great half hour comedy script that someone read eight months ago and now they have a comedy show that just got a green light and they're looking for a junior and you wrote something that they still remember, like you might get that call and you might be able to be brought in for that meeting. So basically it's a lot of, you know, timing that you have no control over and a great meeting. Like if you go into that meeting and you kind of kill it, then you're probably going to mm-hmm. get in the room. I was just hosting a couple of events for the Forest of Reading. I don't know yeah, if you yeah, know yeah. the Forest yeah, of for Reading, sure. Ontario. Mm-hmm. The Provincial Library Association here has this Forest of Reading. So different age groups. I'll just tell our listeners, read at a different sort of forest level. You know, you Silver Birch is like ages, whatever, four to six. Uh, okay. Silver Birch Express is different. And so you, you move all the way up. So one of the events I was hosting was the White Pine Award, which is grades nine to 12 And it was pitched to me as like students who are like, these are the English majors. You know, these are the people who are going to be really focused on their own writing and and reading and literature and grade nine to 12, mostly female. So it was exactly the same attitude as my 17 year old daughter. So I felt pretty at home and it was some hard work, but it was an interesting event. And the writers in that event, a lot of them are echoing some of the stuff you've been saying, which is that they started at 15, 16, 17, had to get a lot of no's and had to sort of find a way to swim through that yep. and find ways to just believe in themselves. And that was the message they were trying to give these young students as well. The big difference, of course, is there's no writing room for, you know, a YA author yeah. or, or a novelist. It's very alone. So I wanted to ask, are you happier in a writing room? Do you like the collaboration or are you happier? Like, I don't want to bounce off anybody. I don't want my stuff to be rejected. I'd rather be a solo act. Give me something. I go away with it and I come back. It depends. I will say it is very hard to write a pilot on your own. Sure. I've done it a bunch of times. All I want to do what, is- versus versus a film is a film easier or just no, films uh, writing is anything difficult because it's so long it takes forever. There's so many scenes. It's just, it's all hard alone in a room. It's all hard. I love being in a room. I think it's the most fun way to spend your time. Cause it's mostly just nonsense, you know, like it's just fun. You're just, you're getting mm-hmm. paid to do this. It's, it's just a great, great time. There is a part of me that really enjoys the alone process as well. And whether that, is, you know, long form fiction, anything like I do need my time alone to do my work. But gosh, sometimes I'm just like, I just want to get in a room with three other people and just figure this out. Mm. And it would be so much better if I could. And I think, you know, anyone who wants to write for TV needs to love being with other people, or it's not going to work. 
you know, you just, you, the whole process of a writing room eventually ideally is we're all just going to hive mind into this show and these characters, and it's just going to be in our bodies. And we're all going to like be thinking about it all the time. And it's the only thing we want to talk about. And like, we're just in love and, you know, Mm. and then once the gig's over, we never talk again. No, I'm I'm kidding. (laughs) But, you know, I think that if you don't want to do that, this is not for you. You should probably just write TV movies and features and stuff like that. Well, I think you're very fortunate to have had had some positive experiences too. I know a number of different gigs, you know, recurring in the country that are just not as, you know, it doesn't foster that type of camaraderie. It's pitting people against each other. My first writing gig was a lot of, you know, pitching jokes and other writers going pass, pass. That's a miss. That's a miss for me. And I'm like, what? I'm writing jokes for myself. I know I can say. So yeah. you have to really, again, the the yeah. skin must be quite thick, I think. Yeah, so I, I think it's I don't know be, if you had yeah, to do all that. Quite thick. And also, you know, the other thing that when people ask me how to be in a room, my thing is whatever you're saying is neither bad nor good. There's no better or worse. It's all just something that we can continue to talk about. And, you know, rooms that you're describing, I know they exist and it sucks. It's, you know, why, why is that the way it is? This is not a competition. We are all owning what we're doing here Mm -hmm. together, you know, and that comes from whoever's running it, to be honest, and who's at the top and who's making the decisions like that kind of vibe is not going to get anybody the best work. It's not, it's just, you know, so it's unfortunate that that is true. And I've been very lucky to work with people who don't do that. <laughs> Maybe so, next so time. Me, I don't know. <laughs> you never know. Good luck. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Good one that sucks. Yes. Yeah. So actually, can you just explain just to our listeners what a showrunner is? Because you kind of just alluded to that, the sure. person in charge. Could just let us know what that's all about. Yeah. So a showrunner is kind of a newer, not newer, a term that has become more publicly known to regular folk in recent years. I feel like it was maybe lost. J.J. Abrams was like the first kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, hey, he's a showrunner. And everyone's like, what does that mean? In sort of, you know, simple terms, it's the person at the top. And by the top, I mean below the network and people who write checks. You know, the person who is the creative stopper for the show. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to be the creator of the show. In many cases, it is, but sometimes the creator is a junior person who doesn't have all the experience necessary to Mm -hmm. show run. So I always kind of describe it as a job in two parts. They run the writing room. They hire the writers. They're in charge of the creative. They sort of say, yes, no, this, that, and the other. Let's work on this. Let's kick that to the curb. They're kind of in charge of all the material that's going to come out of the room and go out into the world. That's sort of the first part of the job. They're also in charge of, you know, pitching up talking to the network executives, talking to the producers and walking them through the creative Mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of selling what's going on in the writer's room as the best stuff ever. The second part of that job is outside the room, which is all the other stuff that is required to make a television show. Hiring your key creatives, your cinematographers, your directors, your casting director, all the casting. And they are the person at the end of the day that kind of makes the decision. You know, you have five actors, all the producers are have a different idea of who, and usually they look at the showrunner and go, well, what do you think? And that person's, you know, the final person. Mm-hmm. That's who you blame. Mm-hmm. So, and then into production, you know, they're kind of managing 
all the questions that are going to come up during the course of production. Mm -hmm. Can this person wear this instead of that? Okay, yes, we need to revise the script. Can we shoot this inside instead of outside because it's raining? You know, like whatever, all the things that are going to come up over the course Mm -hmm. of a shoot, Mm -hmm. they're the person who has the answers because they are mostly ingrained in the scripts from episode one to episode 10 Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. however. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're kind of, in charge of everything that happens before and everything that ends up on screen is kind of the way to look at it. I can add just one thing to that, Asif. In my experience, the words I've heard to describe a showrunner's job the most often, the adjectives are incredibly tiring and completely thankless. (laughs) Even though Ramona accurately described all of what they do, It's insane that it would be thankless, but it's really like, it feels like the best showrunners are the ones that you don't even really realize they're doing their job because they're doing it so well. So I think that's why it becomes a thankless job. And because they've empowered everyone else to kind of like do it, all Mm -hmm. they're really doing is delegating and letting people kind of do their best work. There's a funny, I think it was Bill Prady. I could be wrong. He's like one of the Big Bang Theory guys, and he said, "There's no retiring from show running. It's a hundred percent burnout job. Like you just <laughs> stop. Yeah. Like you can't. There's it. no I like you just have to stop doing it. Like, and that was you know back in the golden like 22 episodes a season mm-hmm. broadcast network world where it's like you just you there's mm-hmm. no just I'm just gonna like ease my way out of it. You just have to you're done and you cannot do it anymore." Your body just says... It's interesting. We're going to get into just in a minute about some of these things, about 22 episodes versus less episodes that we see on streamers, rooms, mini rooms, which we'll talk about in a second. But just two follow-up questions. When it comes to the writer's room, like, so say you're planning a season of television, right? It's 13 episodes. Do you all get together and sketch out and then you assign each writer to a couple episodes. And then how much influence does another writer have on, say, the episode you're assigned? First of all, am I correct in that first assumption? Yeah, for sure. I think one of the first things when you get into a room is you work from big to little. So you start with the overarching season plot, you know, characters, where, you know, the characters starting, where the characters ending, each of them, you know, across the 13 episodes. And you work through a general shape for big things that are going to happen. And then you just kind of continue to sculpt and work down. And eventually you have sort of your season arc document, which will have kind of the shape and, you know, what the characters are going to go through, whatever the big cliffhanger is or whatever the big high points are. And then you go, okay, now we're going to start breaking story, which means we start at episode one and we go, what the heck is this going to be? And basically you kind of pull, you know, from sort of that great brainstorming that you've done with your other writers and you start to sort of figure out what those high beats are, you know, your teaser out, your cliffhanger out of the episode, your act one, two, three break, whatever, depending on what you're doing, hour or half hour. So then you get the shape of that episode. And then from there, then you get smaller. So now it's like, okay, what are the scenes in act one? We need to get from this point to that point, from that point to that point, all through the episode. And then you get smaller and you go into the scene and you go, how is this all going to shake out? So it's very much a big to little kind of process. And as a group, you're doing that? As a group, everyone weighs in, everyone talks about it. Some rooms are different. I think on Degrassi, we had two rooms running each room breaking two episodes and you knew which episode you were breaking before that process started. 
we had done all the big character arcing and season long arcing, but sort of the individual break, you knew it was your episode as you were breaking it. And sometimes you generally, you kind of have a kind of idea of which episode you're going to end up writing. Sometimes you're surprised. Sometimes things shift around for various mm-hmm. reasons and you think you're going to be writing episode two and you're actually writing episode five, whatever. But for the most part, you don't necessarily know if you're writing the episode or not. So you're just kind of weighing in, brainstorming, pitching ideas, you know, without really knowing if you own it. Right. And so then someone will say, okay, that's your episode. We put all this stuff together as yeah. this outline. Yeah. Now you go and do it. Yeah. You basically get the board, which is all the beats that you've come up with. And then you're kind of off you go. You go outline it, get feedback on the outline, get sent to draft. You draft it on, you know, the tricky thing is to answer your question about, you know, how much influence someone has over your episode is if you're working on a very serialized show and you're writing, you know, something very specific. And all of a sudden the showrunner's like, hey, that whole act that we were giving you were writing is now going to be in Joe Blow's episode now. And you're like, okay, great. So, you know, now we got to work over it again and figure out how to fill the gap. And, and you know, that happened a lot on Degrassi because it was a very serialized show. And sometimes you would have character arc things and you're just like, we just need this in the other episode. We don't have a good mm-hmm. ending. So we're going to take right. your teaser. So, yeah. And now you got to move everything up and find some other stuff to do. It's a process. It's just a constant working it over. It never ends. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. How do you keep track something like Degrassi or Winona Earp, where you have a history mm-hmm. and almost a mythology for Winona Earp, right? How do you keep track of that to know what happened before? So you're not like, oh, no, you're forgetting, you know, Degrassi dated this person or, or you know, face this challenge. Yeah, this is where Wikipedia comes in very handy. I will <laughs> say my first, I started working on Degrassi in season 11. So at that point, there had been many, many episodes of the show. I think we crossed 300 while I was still working on that show. And then it went on to like a bazillion more episodes. But I was like, just, I got to Google this. I don't know. Like, it's impossible to track. No one could possibly keep all of that story and all those character arts and things that have happened in their head. Wynonna Earp, you had Emily Andres, which who was a showrunner, who was her, her show, who just had it, you know, she just had it all in her head. She knew every single thing that had happened every moment everything she had wanted to do going forward. And it was just sort of, you know, up to us writers to check with her and pull out all this little bits and pieces that she had to make sure. You also have a story coordinator who is usually your point person, usually a person who's very good at research and tracking and, you know, probably has a few documents they've squirreled away over the time where it's just like, Mm -hmm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to have a document of all the nicknames that they've said. So, you know, if at any point someone asks me what so-and-so called so-and-so in episode whatever, they can pull it up and seem like brilliant that they remembered. But on the Hardy Boys, like we were just constantly pulling stuff from the books in terms of characters and locations and like various little fun things for anyone who, you know, might happen to watch it and, and, you know, little Easter eggs and stuff like that. And we had documents, we had spreadsheets, you know, someone's, someone's doing it. (laughs) It's not me, but there is generally someone tracking a lot of things. And again, you know, the internet is great. Like, because fans, I'll tell you right now, fans of shows Mm, are tracking this stuff way closer than anyone else 
And this is a good way to end this section. Ramona, I was looking, I wanted to look up something for you. It was one of your awards or something I wanted to check. And so I'm like, oh, I'll just do a quick internet search. And the best information was actually on a Degrassi, their yeah, wiki. wiki fan page. Yeah. And it has a whole page for you yeah. because you're a writer on the show with your picture. I mean, I'm like, wow. Yeah, they are really, weird. really into Degrassi. Yeah. To a very strange degree. It's like yeah. red hair, blue eyes. I'm like, that's why right. is that on yeah. there? It <laughs> describes your physical characteristics. Honestly, Ali, okay. you got to check it out. I'm going to link to it. And you're a writer. Just to refresh yeah. people's memory, <laughs> this is un- Ramona is a writer. Yeah. <laughs> there is absolutely no need for anybody to know what a writer looks like. This is one of the beauties of being a writer. You can sort of have this anonymity, yeah. but not when the fans get hold of you. No, I guess. no. The internet, I've worked on a few shows with very intense fan bases and they will find you. You cannot hide. They will find you. It's all lovely. I've had very lovely interactions with people, but also like just arm's length. It's okay. You know, thanks for watching. I remember working with Canadian actor and we were working at the CBC in Toronto and there's four different exits you can leave. And one day we're leaving an exit together and there's a gentleman just standing at the exit waiting for her with her headshot. Could you sign this headshot and she signed it and she was silent. And I was like, Oh, were you not, were you not comfortable signing your headshot for him? Was that weird? She was like, no, the weird part is how did he know I was going to leave that exit? There's four different ways out. Plus you can go underground. How did he know I was going to, so yeah, the fans can be, you know, it's, uh, he was perfectly nice. I was right there. But the whole thing was creepy, yeah. <laughs> but he wasn't creepy. Yeah, these are not things people should generally know. Yeah. No. And that's a yeah. Canadian actor, right? Like you, you I know. 10, 10x that no, for absolutely. someone who's like, yeah. you know, forget it. I think this is a good time to talk about we spend the last 15 20 minutes that we have talking about this strike it would be weird if we didn't right mm-hmm. it's uh, and and obviously we wanted to make sure people understand you are not part of the writers guild of america and that is who is on strike right now the wga in in hollywood they call them the hollywood writers in mid-april april 17th wga members overwhelmingly approved a strike authorization vote and that gave the Guild, which has over 11,500 TV and movie writers in it, to initiate a strike once the two sides were unable to make a deal. They were unable to make the deal. And that vote was uh, approved by 97.78% of the members. who So overwhelmingly in favor of this strike. I don't know if that's common to see those type of numbers when an organization is going to strike. So we kind of wanted to, you know, we've sort of done the reading. There's a, a Vox article, a New York Times article, a Variety article that Asif and I have combed through to, you know, give some context to people. We'll have those posted as well. But we really, you know, given your knowledge of the strike. And first of all, let's back things up. Do you support the strike or is this all a bunch of nonsense? <laughs> let's uh, let's start with that. I 100% support the strike. I think yeah. the shifts that have happened in film and television over the last, you know, 10 years, not even have been huge. And, you know, there's been decisions made about how the creatives are to be treated and compensated for their work that is not equal to the money that is being made off of their Mm -hmm, creations mm -hmm. and their work. And I think 
as always, the writers are always kind of the first people up over the hill. They kind of just go for it every time. And, you know, I think, again, as you said, I'm I'm not a Writers Guild of America member. I'm part of the Writers Guild of Canada. I work under Canadian contracts, which is a totally separate issue. We are not on strike. We are happily making our Canadian television shows. But on that note, does that strike... Like so many things in the U.S., how there is often a trickle-down effect into Canada, will, do you expect to see some sort of, I mean, I, I don't know if benefit is the right word, but if the if the WGA has, uh, you know, their conditions are met, will that be beneficial then to the WGC? Are there things that Canadian writers are going to benefit from? Are you looking for certain precedents to be set, or, they, or do you really not have a "quote unquote" skin in the game other than supporting your fellow writers? I think our in, our industry is very different from the U.S. Hollywood industry. It's interesting. There, was, I don't have the. There was a tweet from a UK writer after the sort of the strike went through, and you know the British Writers Guild and the Canadian Writers, you know, all the international guilds were very supportive and and released statements supporting the WGA and their fights for these various things. And there was a tweet from a UK writer who said, "I 100% support what they're fighting for, but it's weird because what they're fighting for and against is the way we work." in the UK. And it, we very much, and it's similar in Canada, like our rooms and, and how our contracts work is very much what the WGA is not wanting to do. So there's a bit of a cognitive dissonance a little bit because the, you know, we support them, but we also work in very small rooms for very short periods of time with very little set experience for junior writers, mm-hmm. which is sort of the top for line. very little for money, very little money. We don't get residuals yeah. in Canada. You know, these are all the things that they're fighting okay, to maintain. That's interesting. In yeah. They're fighting. You to maintain. don't get residuals. We don't oh, get residuals. Okay. You might get, I think maybe I got mm, like a hundred bucks off a of Degrassi episode from a million years ago once, but we in Canada, we get production fees. So when the show actually goes into production, we get a percentage based on whatever the budget of the episode is. So if an episode of the Hardy Boys goes into production based on whatever the the budget of that episode is, is given to the writer. If that episode does not go into production, I do not get that production fee. So that is to take place of a potential residual, but that's a one-time fee. Whereas residuals back in the good old days, you know, every time your episode of Cheers aired on whatever syndicated network a bazillion times, you would get a nice juicy check and you lived off your residuals forever. That doesn't happen anymore. So it doesn't happen for Canadian writers. And Ali, do you get residuals as an actor? No, you get residuals if you act in commercials. If your commercial re-airs, you'll see some some buckaroos come. None of my commercials were successful enough to be re-shown a second time, so I don't really know anything about that world. You've heard rumors? (laughs) No. I've heard rumors. Yeah. Yeah, what do I get? I get like an annual check the performers rights society so there's certain i'm so ignorant about the financial elements of my own business but i do get certain things later but that's almost that almost feels like a settlement of like oh we still owed you this because of this we still owed you this we had this extra money yeah yeah so then i guess the issue if i understand it correctly is the writers guild in the u.s wants residuals from streaming mainly it seems right. that the, that's what they want right. and so is that correct that's that's that one is of right their... they want a, an infrastructure put in place that allows the writers to receive re- residuals for the episodes that are being played on their platform it's not something you know and I don't know the nitty gritty of the math or how that all is supposed to shake out or what they're actually looking for but 
the issue is that once your episode is on your that platform, that's where it stays. It's never going to go anywhere else. So the money, theoretically, the money isn't being generated by a sale to, you know, a station in Australia or India mm-hmm. or wherever. It's just going to be coming from the buckets of money that that platform is making mm-hmm. somehow that they you know right. can't be filtered mm-hmm. down to any of the people who put content on their channel. But I think the interesting thing is that usually that's based on success and some metric of success and mm-hmm. how many times that episode was watched, right? Like an episode of Cheers, you know, they know how many times it got sold and aired. So they can do the math. Okay, we it aired it 50 times right. here. We can do the math. We can put it in a spreadsheet. Now we have a number to spit out to our writer. On streaming platforms, they don't like anyone to know what's going on. So that there's no metric by which a writer can negotiate or understand how much a residual should be. So just to be clear, they know, but they don't want others to know. Is that yeah, right? They don't tell their producers, their writers, their actors. Every once in a while, you get a press release saying like 2,000 billion minutes of whatever got watched, which means nothing to anyone who might want to get paid for how many billions Mm. of minutes were watched of the thing they wrote, you know, like there's no, that doesn't mean anything. So they don't want to share the data. They can't do the math. They can't plunk those into a spreadsheet and spit out a number. So the writer's guild is basically saying like, share your data, tell us how successful or not successful we are so we can make money off of our work. Mm -hmm. They don't want to do that. So they would just get paid a set amount for writing this show, you know, X number of episodes yeah. you're in the writing room for the show and that's it. Yeah, so now they would get done. their script fee. They would get their weekly for however many weeks they worked in the room. And, you know, a lot of those shows are being written in very short, condensed periods of time. So the weeklies are not amazing because it's like, well, you have six weeks to figure out 13, you know, 10 episodes of a season. And then you all go away and we're going to keep a showrunner and maybe one other writer to, to do all this production stuff. That's super interesting. So I guess one of the issues is this idea that they have what are called mini rooms. Ali and I were reading about this the other day, and that's what people don't like, these very small writer's rooms. Yeah, very small writer's rooms. So you have your showrunner, you probably have your story coordinator, story assistant, sort of note keeper, tracker, and then maybe two or three other writers, which in Canada is like, we do. that's just normal. We just do that. But in the States, no, like they 12, mm-hmm. 12, I don't even know, like a broadcast network show, 20, you know, like they're used to that. But the streaming services don't like that model. They don't want to keep writers around. They want very short, they call it pre-green light. So it's like, hey, you guys go sit in a room for six weeks, write a bunch of scripts. We'll pay you. You get paid for that. And then you go away and we decide if we're going to make this show. And if we do, we're just going to keep the showrunner in the couple other dudes oh wow so everybody else just goes away and it becomes a very gig economy kind of thing because those rooms are short there's less episodes being spread around less so that means less scripts are being written by you it's very hard to sustain and that is not what's typically happened in sort of the hollywood system Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then you also mentioned that you know sometimes then the show will go into production and how is it that there are some shows that even though there's a writer's strike right now, they're saying HBO's House of the Dragon right. is probably the biggest one. They're like, well, we have all our scripts written, so we're just going to go into production. Uh, like, And people say, how is that even possible? There is a magical utopia world that they must live <laughs> in where 
all the scripts are fine. They're all written. Also, all the prep on all eight to 10 episodes have been done because there is a whole prep period with 40 meetings, 50 meetings that happen with various keys, heads of departments, directors, actors, stunt people, visual effects people. All those meetings lead to notes that need to be synthesized and implemented into those scripts. So not only mm-hmm. have all the scripts been written in the writer's room, they've also gone through all the prep on those scripts, done all those meetings, made all those changes, issued all those pages to all the departments, and they've gone into production with a flaw-free, never went over, got every shot, never rained, no actor got sick. Like that is this magical utopia. There's some world where that potentially is how they're doing it. It feels <laughs> like you might be suggesting that House of the Dragon is a house of the lies. House of the lies. Look, maybe. 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 Who knows, huh? Allegedly. Allegedly, or this is what that fantastical universe That exists. fantastical, flaw-free, magical yeah. land where they're making a very difficult, very expensive show is fine. It's fine. You know, the alternative is that someone's doing it and who that person is just doing it. Or oh, like a scab work. Scab basically. Yeah, yeah or not even, it could be a producer for or right. a director or a poor script coordinator who's been pressured into, you know, like it's not good. It's not a good situation for anyone. And to be honest, House of the Dragon, as difficult as I can't imagine it being a fun time just normally, they're not having fun. <laughs> like it no, is not, not a good time for those people. Right. It's they a str- are struggling. Yeah. Asif and I were actually talking about the last strike in 2007, just based on some of the stuff we read. And I, I remember that strike mm-hmm. because I lived and worked as a comedian in Montreal and there were American comedians, you know, who had, uh, Canadians who had become Americans who were coming back to Montreal right. to live with their parents. I remember Barry Julian, who was a staff writer with the Stephen Colbert show, mm. who is now the head writer of the Stephen Colbert. He was coming and for me, it was like, this is amazing. I get to see Barry Julian because he had left Montreal years before. But yeah, he painted a kind of a bleak picture for he and his wife both, I think, were writers or affected by the writer's strike in any case. And it's just like, we don't know. We don't know. And and that strike lasted 100 days. Like, that is a long time. It obliterated a ton of shows. You know, it just, it was not good. And for them to say it's all fine and dandy, we're not, you know, part of the reason House of the Dragon is not being affected is because it's not shooting in the States, right? Like, Mm -hmm. they're wherever they are, Europe, Croatia, I don't even know where they shoot it. And Lord of the Rings, they're in Australia, New Zealand. Like, they're not in the States. But the amount of shows that have shut down already within Mm -hmm. 12 days, I guess, for Mm -hmm. like not even two weeks that have stopped shooting, they just were like, because of the pickets, is incredible. Like, all Mm -hmm. the top HBO shows, a ton of broadcast shows, like, you know, I mean, Stranger Things going down is not... Yeah, huge. Yeah. It is a no, huge the deal. Show and for them to Netflix, say it's fine, yeah. we have a lot in the bank. I'm like that show. They those kids are going to be 45. All right. <laughs> <that> <laughs> like, or they're going to look at anyway. Gonna, it's just it's yeah. wild. It's like so with the pandemic delaying it as long as it did, and to to have this. Like if this strike goes on for 100 plus days, it's not going to be a good scene. And they need you know they need to 
it's so little money. Like when you actually look mm-hmm, at the numbers, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. We're really talking about making the obscenely wealthy slightly less obscenely wealthy. Yeah. That's the way I, I break it down, and and that's how you can describe, you know, yeah. whatever pharmaceuticals, grocery stores, all this kind of stuff. It's all about can you very wealthy stakeholders just take a little less home every year? Impossible. Yeah. Just completely inconceivable, it appears. Ali and I were talking, I guess there's an example from 2007, the yeah. James Bond movie, Quantum of Solace. Yeah. It was unfinished and because there are writers, as, as Ramona was applying on set, and you guys have worked with them. I mean, Ramona is a writer and, and Ali's worked with the writers on the set, so mm-hmm. they're constantly writing it. I guess they already started filming and the script was unfinished. So it was Daniel Craig and Mark Forrester trying to write the script and well we all know how that turned yeah, out exactly. is it your favorite good. james bond movie <laughs> it's not it is not so and even them being like they're like what the hell like what are we doing we don't know how to do this <laughs> that's it daniel craig said a writer i am not and meanwhile there i was with uh, with director mark forster like working on it so yeah. yeah you know yeah definitely there's another element that has become so critically important in such a short period of time. I mean, some people were well aware of it years ago just because they're able to see how things will develop in the future. But just with ChatGPT's presence in the last few months and, you know, AI already in its numerous iterations, we've been able to see how much stronger it gets. And there are screenwriters who worry about, you know, how long it's going to be before AI starts writing scripts and and a very interesting very informative thing i saw was justine bateman who many of us will remember as mallory from family ties justine bateman had a series of tweets which we'll link to about ai and how it relates to screenwriting and acting so not just the writing but the actual portrayal of your image and so now the latest tweets were can you send me anybody who's had in their contract something about you know, what is the clause around sharing, not sharing. Why am I saying sharing? That's so courteous. Healing. Giving away, <laughs> yeah. giving away your likeness <laughs> to a production oh, company. Right. And those lines, people have been sharing it. Those lines are, you agree as the actor to give us your likeness and any resemblance of your likeness and any resemblance thereof now and forever in perpetuity. I mean, you're just, you know, you're selling your image and everything. So it just feels like constantly unprotected against these things. What are your thoughts about AI as your as it pertains to your profession or these conversations you have with, with your colleagues? The fact of the matter is, is eventually, no matter what artificial intelligence you use in terms of writing, the actor thing is very scary. And I worry incredibly for actors just because their images can be manipulated so easily mm-hmm. and maliciously. It's just, it's very scary. In terms of like, the screenwriting element, I feel like eventually at some point your little AI robot writer is going to run into a human and that human is going to make it very difficult for that screenplay to continue on. And by that, I mean an AI, GTV, whatever, can probably write a decent Fast and the Furious movie. You know, you feed in all the scripts that have come out, it's going to pop out something that's probably fine. But eventually, you're going to need a human to make that screenplay work. And you're going to need producers, financers, studio executives, directors, production designers. Vin Diesel is going to show up at some point and say, we need something to change. And for 
that mm-hmm. to synthesize all those opinions, all those notes and ideas, whatever Vin Diesel does or doesn't want to do today, you need a human. So all that's doing for a studio or a producer is taking out one stage of the writing process, thinking it's going to be a nice shortcut and it'll be fine. It is not going to be fine. You are going to ultimately need a writer to come in to make it better, to make all these revisions and changes, to to do the work to get it to the place where you can actually make it shootable. And you're delaying the inevitable. To me, I feel like eventually you're going to be like, oh, we need a writer. Like, <laughs> oh, you know, it's it, you can probably and honestly, there probably have been maybe not so much in Hollywood, but I'm sure in other international you know, film communities, AI movies have already been made. You know, some stuff's just not good and it's fine and it gets made all the time. And that is probably what is going to end up being the result of AI script writing. But, you know, where it's no good for writers, and I think what the WGA is saying is like, do you commit to not using AI to write your scripts? Yes or no? Mm-hmm. And they are like, we don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Later, you know, we'll discuss it at another time. And they just yeah, want to say, now? they just want them to say, <laughs> no, like, we're not going to do that. And they yeah, don't want to yeah, do yeah. that. And that's scary. They want to say that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. It's so bad. It's and so then bad. there's other ethical issues that come up. So if you do generate an AI script, should the people who created the AI algorithm get story credit and get these residuals that everybody's talking yeah, about exactly. or also the problem with ai is it's used for something like medicine because it's searching a bunch of different things that you assume are factual yeah. right yeah but obviously when you're looking at the ideas that it generates from internet for something that's supposed to be a novel creative process it clearly is going to be infringing on what other people have written it just has to be it opens them up like studios and mm-hmm. executive it opens them up to liability Cause it's all just the wild west, right? Like it's all just panning for gold and like nobody owns anything. And it's just, it's, it's not, I don't think it's smart for them to think that's a good idea. Like I'm just like, guys, no, yeah, that's where my brain goes to. I think it will be bad. And I think it, you're going to eventually need a writer. And I think you're going to open yourself up. The only reason you can make a decent fast and the furious movie out of an AI machine is because there were seven of them yeah it's formulaic yeah Yeah. but it's also the world has been created the characters have been created now you know the formula has been locked in and now you can spit it out the other side it's you know and you know justine bateman's the most alarming thing that she tweeted was there is a way for someone to make an eighth season of family ties they could do it with our images and the 167 episodes that we made that i don't know if that's the right number but yeah you know pumping them in someone could literally draw it make it put it on youtube you know but then those people are just gonna get sued so i'm like (laughs) it's weird it's a weird thing there's one thing for fans to do it fan art fan Mm -hmm. fiction i'm gonna you know take a bunch of clips and make a new whatever star wars movie and put it up on youtube there's one thing about doing like that there's a difference between that and a studio deciding that's how we're going to do things. <laughs> you shouldn't, that's not what you want. Totally. You know, it's very scary for them to even just not want to engage in the conversation because they're telling. Yeah, very it's very telling. telling well. And it also makes them seem like we don't know either, but we're just going to leave the door open. Just mm-hmm, in case mm-hmm. This all goes. Because God forbid we protect you because yeah. that might, you know, leave yeah. us in a place where we're not able to rip you off. Yeah. <laughs> 
this feels like an episode that raises more questions than it answers, Sorry, but I, I'm happy with that. No, I'm happy yeah, with that. I think Asif and I both, we, you know, it, it's a conversation that leads to more conversations about the same and yep. potentially alarm and concern. And that is okay. Also, even, even if your alarm is just like, will my favorite show not have a third season? Be, be concerned, get involved be with the, uh, you know. <laughs> knowledgeable about the stuff that's happening and i would say from yeah like compared to like the 2007 strike and this strike it does feel like the general public is much more aware of the value that writers bring to projects they understand what a showrunner is they get who the you know they they're the internet in that way has allowed people to support in a way that maybe they didn't quite understand in the last strike and i think that's a good thing because they're like like as soon as you see charts of people's salaries billionaire salaries versus the amount of money like that's very clear and and a you know, a person that doesn't know anything about the industry will look at that and be like, yeah, that's, that's crap. Mm-hmm. Like pay them. Let's, let's get yeah. going. So that is an interesting thing as well. Pay them. Let's get going. Print those t-shirts <laughs> as soon as you can get them to the picket lines and they'll sell like hotcakes. Ramona, thank you so much. Really appreciate you uh, weighing in here. We've taken you away from the projects <laughs> that you were probably working on the, you've already painted yourself as a writing machine. So we've, We've taken you away from money that you should have been paid in yeah. a way. What are we doing here? <laughs> Do we, are we protected against Ramona suing us? Is I that, think uh, we've been uh, we texting my agent throughout. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh-oh. He's going to send you a bill. <laughs> but yeah, thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. Pleasure talking to you. And I hope we meet in person someday soon. I hope so too. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks, Ramona. So that's our episode for today. Ali, very interesting stuff, talking to Ramona about the screenwriting process, how she broke in, and especially about the Writers Guild of America strike. Really fascinating stuff. Yeah, I was very happy to have a a guest come in and lend their own experience about a writing room, right? Because every writing room is is different. She's obviously mm-hmm. you know very aware of how fortunate she is to have been in some really great rooms but knows all the stories it's like a it can be a pretty painful process in there and 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 if not for the work that you do in a writing room then for the environment that you have to kind of you know tolerate and withstand you should be mm-hmm. paid appropriately Absolutely. And your thoughts on AI were also interesting. And it reminds me, there's a parallel, right? Like in medicine, people are like, oh, AI is going to replace you. It's like, you know, it's not. And we did a whole episode on AI a couple episodes ago, which you guys could listen to, talking about AI does have a lot of uses in medicine, but replacing physicians, it probably is not going to, at least not right now. And I think Ramona was talking about similar things for screenwriting, right? Like the Hollywood execs, like, yeah, we're just having AI, you know, bang out this script. Like they really don't understand what goes into screenwriting. And so I could see a parallel there for sure. Says you. But remember, reach out to us, drvcomedian at gmail.com, drvcomedian on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We are everywhere. Let us know what you guys thought about this episode, what you guys think about the writer's strike, anything else you guys want to hear about in that kind of realm. And remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.